0: You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Geary. It's just about to be spring at the time of this recording, and like anyone living in a climate that sees winter conditions, it seems like it can never come too soon. Sure, the snow can be pretty if it dusts the landscape with an appeal of a winter wonderland every now and then, and coats and scarves and gloves can be cozy and comforting to break up the year's weather patterns, and frigid mornings can be the perfect time to curl up on the couch with a hot drink and a book, and of course, snow days are always welcomed, impromptu day off when they come, but often for those who live in winter, you can really get over it. We've had some cold weeks and overcast days that have drug on even in a place like Oklahoma that has an average of 237 sunny days per year. So when the signs of spring start showing up, it can be a welcome diversion. The seasons are about to change and you watch for it. Just the last couple days, I've watched as the trees have started budding and the grass has taken the first steps to greening and the birds have started chirping with a bit more gusto and even watched as the sun has started dawning earlier. But with the blessing of longer days, sprouting trees and warming temps, We in Oklahoma and a lot of places in the US also have to bear the threat of looming severe weather. The topsy-turvy weather changes of two seasons battling out for dominance. Cold air, warm fronts, moisture from the Gulf and polar vortexes battle it out in the plains and severe weather, including tornadoes, get thrown in the midst. Just last week, we found ourselves in our neighbor's storm shelter at about 10 p.m. on a Monday night. There were spin-ups around the states and our area was next on the radar. We packed up the cats, grabbed our wallets and cell phones, put on some shoes and ran across the street to join our neighbors in the shelter. Soaking wet and ringing ears from the piercing wailing of the ominous sirens all around town. And one siren position at the end of our street just 100 yards away, so there was no ignoring the fact that we were being warned to take precautions. Well, in the end, nothing in our neighborhood more than a bunch of extra water, which is welcomed after a pretty dry winter, especially as all the plants try and make it back to life but we were watching the signs anyway that night. Of course, we are not meteorologists, but we don't have to be in a state like ours. The weather people on TV tell us days in advance when to be weather aware. They are reading the weather models and the computer data, and they can tell with mostly pretty good accuracy where, when, who, and what to be prepared for. They even send out storm chasers. chasers. Think the movie Twister from the late 90s. These weather fanatics driving around in their souped up vehicles, heading to the storms when most of us are fleeing them to make the latest observations, watching the storms from up close. Zooming around the highways of the state, giving live updates as they remote into the studios to keep the rest of us up to date on what to know, where the storm is headed, and what to expect if it arrives. When the seasons change, so do the signs of the season, and it's wise to watch and be ready. Something we will do from a perspective of prophecy as we finish up chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. So let's dive in. On this podcast, we finish up what is known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He's sitting across from the temple, explaining to the disciples what the sign will be for the destruction of the temple that he spoke of, the sign of his coming, and the end of the age. A pretty broad range of questions, a bit complicated to unravel since they all span at least 2,000 years of the future at the time of their discussion. So Jesus painted with broad strokes, giving some telltale signs that the world would see, like birth pangs, growing in intensity and frequency leading up to his return the earthquakes, the famines, the conflicts, the diseases. And Jesus spoke of the growing opposition and resistance and persecution that would confront those who follow Jesus. And Jesus told them of a trigger to be watching for, the abomination of desolation, something that would defile the temple, what many believe is a still-future event, an antichrist coming in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, demanding to be worshipped as God, a false messiah that many will buy into. Setting off a time clock if we take into account Old Testament prophecies like those in the book of Daniel. A few more laps until Jesus returns. Those final years of tribulation like the world has never seen before. And though much of what Jesus shared would take place was hard and challenging, Jesus assured them that the coming time would be limited in scope and that God would shorten those days for the sake of the elect. And then in giving advance warning, the believers can watch and take heed. But like the weather people in Oklahoma who are watching in advance to keep us on our toes, the one thing to be looking for that matters most is the return of Jesus itself. Because he will come. And here, during his Olivet Discourse, just days before he will be lying in a tomb having been crucified, it's the main message he wants them to know especially because in the coming days for them, this discussion from there, there will be many disappointments, a general understanding by many that the Messiah was supposed to come and make everything right, to rule and to reign as a mighty king and savior, kicking out the oppressors and setting up a glorious kingdom. And this view was not unfounded, since prophecies in the Old Testament spoke of this, but they also spoke of the savior being a humble servant. And unable to recognize the two, a meek servant, savior, and a mighty reigning king, unable to reconcile the two of those different viewpoints, it seemed, they tended to ignore those that pointed to a humble first coming and skipped over to look at the prophecies that celebrated his glorious second coming. But the disciples were catching on, though they'd still be rocked to the core when the looming events of the cross greet them in the coming days. But with all they will soon face— Jesus wants them to have some information that will hopefully have them look beyond that, to watch for something greater that will come. As Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18 Therefore, do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, they are eternal. That's the glimpse that Jesus wants to leave them with here. Not to lose heart and to look beyond the immediate challenges that are about to come. And look down the road at the glorious end that awaits when he comes again in glory. Something that they should watch for, no matter how hard and confusing things get in the meantime. And that's something that we do too, don't we? We look for mile markers down the road to keep us pressing on. I talked to three friends this week, all finishing up school, higher education one his master's, the other his undergrad, and one a doctorate. And they're counting down the months until they finish, just a few classes remaining. Going back to school is tough especially when you're an adult with other responsibilities, but you pick up the books and do the work and pay the tuition because down the line, you see that it will be worth it. The degree in hand, new opportunities, a bigger paycheck, and the goal of finishing checked off the list, able to move on since all that has been taken care of. And as believers, we are often challenged to look down the road but it's not just wishful thinking, not just a, quote, crutch to lean on to help us get through life. No, belief in Jesus is so much more than that. The forgiveness of sin, the lordship of him in our lives, and the promise of his return and our going to be with him. To trust and believe Jesus in the unknown of today or the hardships of now, with the understanding that God has something good planned on the other side, whether that be our growth and transformation through the temporary trials or the final chapter when the when he makes everything right no matter what is wrong in this world or our own personal worlds so now jesus speaks of after the tribulation the hardest days ever on earth all that will unleash and unfold prior to his second coming he begins to wrap it up with the return of jesus we read mark 13 verses 24 through 27 but in those days after that tribulation The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. In those days, Jesus says, after that tribulation, It's the tribulation that he spoke of previously, like the world had never seen nor would ever see, the great tribulation. What many see is the final three and a half years of history as we know it, a Christ-rejecting world experiencing God's wrath. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The darkest days of that great tribulation will give rise to the bright coming of Jesus. The dark setting the stage for the light to shine brightest. Just like the blackout at the beginning of the show, right before the curtain goes up, or when the curtain opens, the dark theater, the dark audience, and then the spotlight beaming through the darkness for everyone to see where their focus should be. There is an end times view that says the church must usher in the return of Jesus, that it is up to us to establish a world that is full of righteousness. And then when we do, and we get the world under control, the church influencing and making this world right again, that then Jesus will enter the scene, ready to take his throne here. But it is up to us to bring that on, according to that view. What a daunting and impossible feat. The universe and our world follows the second law of thermodynamics. And I think prophecy follows suit. The second law of thermodynamics, that scientific law states that hot things always grow cold unless you do something to stop them. And it maintains that disorder characterized as a quantity known as entropy always increases, that things continue to fall apart, not get better. Which if you look at your bedroom or your office or even your yard or even your house after you've been away for a while, things start to fall apart. Uh, which, by the way, is a scientific law that kind of thwarts the principles of the theory of evolution. If things are falling uh, always into a state of disarray, a universe cannot congeal from a disarrayed mess of a Big Bang. But back to the Olivet Discourse. The world and mankind is in a state of entropy. Ever since the Garden of Eden, falling more and more apart, no matter how many band-aids and patch-up jobs we do, and things will get darker. In fact, the darkest before Jesus returns. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. These celestial markers are interesting. When we look at these things mentioned there, the sun, the moon, the stars, man has often used these markers as markers for times and seasons that we live in to keep track of time, of history. But when Jesus comes back, the history of this fallen world means nothing. All of it is leading to to that point. That's what man is headed towards. So perhaps symbolically, the sun is darkened, the moon ceases to give light, the stars of heaven fall, because there will no longer be need to tell time with the arrival of Jesus, because all of our existence has been leading to that point. Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream he told of a statue made of different metals different ores it had a head of gold that statue had a chest of arms and silver and belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet mixed of clay and iron just these different parts from head to toe each section with a different metal making it up. And Daniel told of the kingdoms that would arise in human history, each part of the body and each metal symbolizing a different kingdom or a different rule, each glorious in its own time and season. But coming and going, none of those kingdoms lasted. And in the vision, a rock carved out, not made with human hands, and it came and crushed the statue made from the various metals. Daniel saying, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. All the times and seasons of man's attempts to rule their own civilizations crumbled and made like dust when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. So the age of man's rule no longer needed for the celestial markers that we use to keep track of time, perhaps. But another thing about the celestial bodies that are mentioned there in Mark, as Jesus picks up where many of the Old Testament prophets made note of cosmic events surrounding the coming of the anticipated messiah for in his first coming he came in mercy and grace forgiveness humble there in a manger but the second coming he will come in glory he will bring judgment and the cosmic signs foreboding that time to come often called the day of the lord take for example isaiah 13 verses 9 through 11 behold the day of the lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in it's going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. There are those celestial signs that Jesus points to in the Olivet Discourse. And then speaking here as a quote in Isaiah, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Jesus came the first time as a savior. His message started with, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But when he returns, he will bring judgment to those who have not reconciled with him through the forgiveness that Jesus offers freely. And we see these same types of celestial events as well in Ezekiel 32 verses seven and eight. It says, when I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you, and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. The prophet Joel also speaks of signs before what would be called the day of the Lord, God speaking here. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Interesting talk in recent years about celestial events like the blood moons, and some interesting theories about those things, but not sure there's much weight in those. Or if after those future days of tribulation, there'll be some clear celestial events, these signs in the heavens. As I mentioned, it is interesting that the heavens serve as markers for us of times and seasons, but it's almost as if they are discardable that they have served their purpose, that man's history as we know it comes to a close with Jesus' second coming, and we will not need them any longer, so the world will watch as they grow dark. A reflection of the moral and spiritual state of man prior to his arrival as well, but also a confirmation that such markers that man needs for times and dates in history are no longer needed. The Old Testament prophet Amos also had something to say about these celestial events as well. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only sun and its end like a bitter day. Future, perhaps, the sun going dark at noon, feasts being turned to mourning. But like many prophecies, they can have a near and a far fulfillment. And at Jesus' crucifixion, we read in Luke 23, verse 44, that the sun went dark for three hours, starting at noon until about 3 p.m., that the brightest part of the day went dark. And the feast, it was the Passover, the morning that took place as Jesus died for the sins of mankind. And Amos writes, I will make it like morning for an only son. How interesting, the Son of God hanging on the cross in his first coming to pay for the sin of mankind, taking our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But what was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and indication of a repeat at the second coming too, the sun darkening and the mourning of those who realize they have missed their chance to get right with him, as many will come to realize just before his second coming that they've missed Jesus Christ. He had come thousands of years before as a savior, and they're putting their faith in a false messiah, an antichrist that has come onto the scene. The prophet Zephaniah talks about the celestial signs too. The great day of the Lord is near, he writes. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It will be dark before the light dawns, something that we see emphasized, a darkness that will usher in the brightness of his coming. As Jesus says in Mark 13, verses 26 and 27, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Jesus, coming in the clouds. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus departed from their midst, ascending to heaven. And ironically, some 40 days after the cross and resurrection, they are still wondering if they are about to march into Jerusalem behind Jesus and set up a kingdom. We read in Acts chapter 1, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The same way that he left, he will come again. I guess I haven't talked about my cats in a while on the podcast, but they know the signs of us leaving and us coming back to the house. They can tell when we gather our things together and head to the back door to leave. They assemble there and watching from the counter or the windowsill, they see us off as we gather our book bags or our purses or our belongings or our lunches and start heading that direction. We get our, our keys and our wallets they know it's time to leave, and they watch us as we go out the back door. They might even run to the front windows to watch from the windowsills to see us drive off as we head out for the day. And throughout the day, they probably go about their business. They nap, they climb, they nap, they play, they nibble, and they nap some more. But when we come home, they are watching and waiting. If they are in the front windows when we turn into the drive, They recognize the vehicles and usually head to the back door to wait for us there, to come back through the same door that we left through. They get back to the windowsill or or on the counter and stare at us as we walk from the carport onto the back porch and come in the back door. They may even meow a slight greeting to welcome us home. The same way that they sent us off, the same way when we arrive back. The angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The departure and the arrival will look quite similar. Coming in the clouds, can you imagine the stark contrast? The darkness and the strangeness in the heavens, the sun going dark, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling, and in that dark gloom, the brightness of his coming. Like a spotlight on the star of the show, the whole arena or theater darkened, all eyes on the main attraction. He will come, it says, with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. First thing he'll do, he will send the angels to gather his elect from all the corners of the earth. So I personally do not see this as a rapture of the church, though some people have a post-tribulation view of God's gathering of the church. I see it as God already having taken his church, removed from the wrath that is to come, clearing the stage for an antichrist to arise, and God's wrath to be poured out. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he spoke of Jesus' return. And in chapter 4, he comforted them with these words. It said, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then shortly after in the next chapter, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think the church will be caught up and escape the wrath of the tribulation. So then when Jesus comes back in the clouds with his church, who does he send his angels out to gather? Who are the elect that he sends for? I think that it is the tribulation saints. Those who come to believe Jesus was the Messiah during the time of the tribulation, a tribulation such such as the world has never seen nor ever shall. These elect believers, whether Jews who come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah or Gentiles who come to faith, a special generation of saints who will be Christ's light and witness in the most Christ-rejecting period of mankind's existence. He will gather them together, and they will enter into his kingdom, and I think to repopulate the earth in a millennial reign after the dissemination of the tribulation. But imagine the homecoming, the joy of this moment, the gathering from the four winds, from every direction. It is a reunion like no other. The elect who make it through those days and times. What a wonderful reunion. Man, talk about tearjerkers. If you ever see the videos of the reunions, especially of military families, Like the one where the mom or dad has been deployed and they come and surprise the kids in the middle of a school assembly or something, not expecting to see them there. They always lose it when they see them unexpectedly. And it's hard to watch and not lose it too. The joy of the homecoming, such a blessing. Well, the gathering of his elect from the four corners, especially after all the hard things that they'll go through, remaining faithful to him in that tribulation, that is a homecoming that will surely be full of tears of joy. And it's just the start of a glorious kingdom that has no end. And I, for one, can hardly wait to see that all unfold. Jesus wraps things up by telling them and us to watch. There will be a lot of trusting that will need to take place, but we can and should be watching. He starts with a parable, verses 28 through 31. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It says we can watch for the signs. And just like in nature, when the fig tree starts to get tender and put forth leaves, a season is coming to be watching for. We removed a tree in the yard last spring. A a deep winter freeze a few years prior had killed it. And after two years of waiting, it never really came back. So with a neighbor's help, I uprooted it. And we planted a new one last spring, not a full-grown tree replanted, but maybe about six feet tall, a few branches. And we planted it in spring to give it time to take root, watered it through the sweltering summer to keep it alive, and watched its few leaves fall in the autumn. But we had our doubts throughout the winter, especially my wife. From the time it was planted in the spring until the time it went dormant in the fall, it didn't really grow much. It kept some leaves, but didn't thrive and take off. And it was a transplant and was sending its root out and getting established. But all winter long, as we'd see it along the driveway near the edge of the house where it was planted, my wife would say, I think it's dead. I told her I didn't think so. It was winter and I was pretty sure it would come back. And sure enough, as our days have gotten warmer and the spring rains have begun, its branches have become tender, and the leaves, well, they're sprouting. That tree that we planted, it is coming back to life and showing us all the signs that summer is on its way. Jesus commanded us to learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. A couple ways to look at this. Jesus has painted with broad strokes here in Mark 13, giving a wide-angle lens of many of the things that will take place before his return. And he tells us not to ignore those things, or write them off as, well, was Jesus really speaking literally? Or, well, hasn't every generation thought Jesus was going to come? Jesus says, notice the signs. Don't ignore them. The signs in one season, like the tender branches and buds of leaves, they point to a coming season, and we should get excited. A point of application being that as believers, we should not be caught off guard. Others look at this even more specifically. When Jesus says to learn the parable, parable from the fig tree, they note that the nation of Israel has been referred to in scripture as a fig tree. Like is mentioned in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. And some see this as a hint from Jesus, that when they see the apparently dead fig tree of Israel, after a long season of winter, put forth tender branches and leaves, sprouting to life again, that they should know that his return is coming in a season soon after. This could go along with the entirety of the Olivet Discourse, in which the questions were melded of when the temple would be destroyed and what are the signs of his kingdom and of his return and when jesus gave this within a generation the temple in jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 ad and the nation of israel well it would be scattered and by all measures israel ceased to exist for almost 2000 years the jewish people scattered across the globe holding on to their identity and language and faith somehow miraculously in fact but no nation or homeland to call their own something that no nation has ever done to hold on to their identity without a homeland Until May 1948, when the UN portioned Israel a homeland and the Jews began to return, and the fig tree, Israel, well, it came back to life. It appeared dead for 2,000 years, but then it came back to life. Some see prophetically that Jesus is referring to this, that when Israel, the fig tree, comes back to life with tender branches and leaves, that then Jesus' return is near. And notice what Jesus said in verses 29 through 31. So you also, when you see these things happening, it could be that he's referring to this rebirth of Israel in 1948, this rebirth of that nation, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. That is an amazing thing. Many had written of Israel, saying, had written off Israel, thinking, well, the church is a spiritual Israel then, and God is working with the church, and Israel is dispensable because, well, they haven't been around for almost 2,000 years. But scripture and prophecy, trying to see it through a lens with Israel, not in the picture, spiritualizing certain aspects of it rather than a literal approach, approach to things, but some through the ages figured, well, that's God's problem. If he says that Israel will be in the land, if he says that there will be a temple, well, then he'll have to figure out how to get them back. And he did. So perhaps that is the parable that he wants us to learn from, to look at the return of Israel as a nation and know that Jesus will return soon after that point. Another trigger, as we talked about on the podcast, but this one, a good trigger. And also to consider that in the 2,000-ish years that Jesus covers in the Olivet Discourse, that if Jesus could speak of things near, like in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, that 2,000 years later when we see Israel reappear, that our faith will be renewed that God can and will do exactly what he says. Even if there are gaps during which we think, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but he must have a plan. And if this parable does point to Israel, take note of what Jesus said. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near, that's his return, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The, quote, this generation, a couple of ways to look at that. It could be the generation that sees the Jewish nation restored, the fig tree coming back to life, that that generation will not pass away until all these things take place and Jesus returns, that the same generation that sees that happen will also see the return of Jesus. But question is then, what is a generation? Is it 40 years, like some places in scripture, like in the wilderness wandering? Or is it 100 years? Or the babies born in 1948 when the last one is about to die off? Not sure and not up to us to do so if that is the meaning, but God sees what he means. And on the other side, it will make sense to us. But definitely interesting to consider. Others note that the quote, this generation, can also mean a nation. That this nation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. The word they're ethnos, like an ethnic group, a nation. That is definitely Interesting. Since the Jewish nation was essentially extinct for almost 2,000 years, and during that time, many began to consider scripture and prophecy, and consider replacement theology, where the church replaces Israel, or preterist views that view prophecy as fulfilled, or amillennialism, that end times prophecy is just symbolic. It could not be seen as literal. Well, that all makes sense if Israel has been a byword, and would not be making a comeback. But when they did show back up on the scene in 1948, A whole new interesting dynamic to end times considerations. Notice again, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What confirmation Jesus might have given in that when Israel entered the picture again to say, See, if I said that that would happen, all the rest can be trusted too. Oh, how wonderful it is to believe and trust Jesus at His Word, to lay all the responsibility on Him and let Him work out the details, to trust and believe and obey, but let Him sweat the small stuff. It's not up to us to bear the burden of need to fulfill all the requirements of Jesus' return or to get all of our theology 100% right on how it will play out, but to rest and trust in the mystery and keep our eyes to the horizon to anticipate His return. And we must always anticipate his return. Notice how Jesus rounds out the Olivet Discourse. Pay attention to the repetition of the word watch in verses 32 through 37. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Do you think Jesus might want us to watch? Four times in those few verses, as he wraps up the Olivet Discourse, watch, keep your eyes looking for it. He has laid out a whole lot throughout the whole chapter, and some might not be very crystal clear. So Jesus' final exhortation to us, as he said, I say to all, it is to watch. Four times, actually five times he uses the word watch there in those verses. To keep your eyes peeled. This tells us that there will be observable markers in science. That if we are watching, there will be things to observe, that we are to watch, because it won't be all clear, no one knows exactly when, but if we do watch, we will not be caught off guard. That is why we are watching. We will be doing what we're supposed to do when he comes back, not lazy, distracted, or sleeping. And everyone needs to be watching. The believer, to anticipate and be prepared for his coming, but the unbeliever, to get right and take things serious, knowing that he is coming soon. And so Jesus gives a one-word point of application to finish his Olivet Discourse. Watch. No one knows the day nor the hour, just the Father. An element of surprise, so we will always be ready. But if we watch, we may know the season or the year, if not the day or the hour, or even the month or the week, possibly, if we're looking at the signs. But this element of surprise, a part of what Jesus was spoken, another reason that many believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, Jesus coming for his church unannounced at any time. And then the tribulation. And we looked at previously some prophecies that speak of timelines, three and a half years from the abomination of desolation until his return. So how can we not know the day nor the hour if he gave us timelines? Well, if there is an imminent coming for the church unannounced, no one will know that day nor hour within seven years of tribulation until his return. There's a lot to consider when looking at end times prophecy, and hopefully I didn't confuse about but made more clarity out of it. And here in Mark, as we wrap up the Olivet Discourse, there's wisdom in the little illustration that Jesus gives here at the end. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. How will he find us when he comes? We each have our work and should be occupied with it until he comes. He gave us authority, gifts and callings, and a charge to go into all the world and make disciples. Whatever time he comes, when he shows up suddenly, will we be busy about his business How shameful to be found sleeping if we are to be working up until his arrival. It's kind of ironic that Jesus' final exhortation for us here in Mark chapter 13 is to watch. And I think our enemy has capitalized on that knowing that Jesus' return could be near. Rather than laboring diligently for the kingdom and watching for him to come, we are watching, but we are watching all the wrong things. Binging our shows, hours on end, watching screens rather than watching the times, watching our feeds of what others are doing rather than sharing what Jesus is doing, watching TikToks and reels that suck us in and eat up valuable time. Not saying we can't watch anything. I'm all about catching up with the latest episodes of those series that I like. But woe to us if we are found sleeping when he comes, if we are found watching the wrong things, enticed and tempted to watch everything else and to miss his return. So Lord, wake us up stir up within us an increased awareness and urgency and anticipation of your return, that this generation of your church would be ready, even if we need to wait a little longer. Lord, give us your heart for this world, not one of callousness and cynicism, but of mercy and love and passion, a heart for the lost that senses the urgency of your coming. Give us in this season, in this week, Lord, in this day even, give us the opportunity to speak the name of Jesus to share the gospel, not just dropping hints of the gospel, but presenting the gospel to those who need to hear, or who need to hear it again, since they have not yet received it. Lord, we watch for your return. Give us wisdom to understand all that is taking place in our world, and may our eyes look to you with growing intensity as your return draws near. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.